Hey, it's Miles, and you are listening to the Auburn Community Church Podcast. Normally, you hit play on this, and we jump straight into a sermon, but we wanted to take a second and invite everyone in our extended family into this season of generosity that we're stepping into as a church. We want to invite you, if you're a podcast listener, you follow along with what God has been doing through our church in this season please pray and consider whether or not God is calling you to give a financial gift above and beyond what you would normally give. It's no secret that this is a time of crazy expansion for our church as we're opening a new building and new locations and saying yes to missionaries and local ministries and ministry initiatives all over the place. And we want to invite you to participate in what God is doing through our church. This is by no means a burden or you have to give. This is a blessing and we feel like we get to give and you're invited into it. So whether that's on Venmo or on our website or reaching out about all the ways to give, maybe think about starting the discipline of giving weekly or monthly, even if that's just $5 or $10 or $15. We want to invite our people to invest into what God is doing through Auburn Community Church. We love you guys. Now enjoy this message. Amen. Well, I'm not going to preach long today. At least I don't think so. Um, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We're calling The Invitation of Jesus. And we've looked at a lot of famous stories from the life of Jesus and looked at what is he inviting us into as disciples who are following in his way. And last Sunday was one that I don't think I'm going to forget. We talked about the walk to Emmaus where the resurrected Jesus walked with two disciples who were dejected and disappointed, leaving behind Jerusalem to walk seven miles back home, even though they had heard rumors that Jesus might have been risen from the dead. They still gave up. And Jesus walks with them, illuminates the scriptures. Now, they don't know it's him until the end and lifts their eyes with hope. And last Sunday was one that I just, we we have to look back on that because the narrative we're gonna read this Sunday literally happens on top of that one. But if you're here and anything from that song or what I said earlier resonated with you, you really need the whole sermon from last Sunday to understand there is always hope on the horizon when you look to Jesus. But if you remember the end of that story, it was kind of weird because they didn't know it was Jesus until they sat down and had a meal. And then, this will get even more crazy, When those disciples go back to tell the other disciples that Jesus had actually risen, they don't believe that Jesus is with them until they have a meal. So the title of this sermon, oh yeah, on Thanksgiving week, is called The Meal. The Meal. We're going to talk about food. Could you tell somebody next to you, and I know this is hard in a split second to think about, but like your ideal, most favorite meal And I want you aiming it at a type of food and a location. So it would be steak at this restaurant. It would be spaghetti at my aunt's house. That's mine. Um, It would be, it would be, I'm sorry, mom, but Aunt Cheryl's a little better. But um, I know, I know, Aunt Cheryl's Italian. Come on, get out of here. It's my dad's sister. Um, So you are like shaming me on that. Come on, guys. Uh, Anyway, tell somebody next to you, favorite meal, The, the item in the place, the item in the place, item in the place. Go, go, go. All of our locations, go. Come on. Okay, Byron, I know you're a big food guy. What was your wife's? Her pie or yours? Her own. Wow. Even though you cook all the time. Okay. All right, look up here. It's so interesting to me how 
out of every question I could have asked you, the one that gets the most participation is about food. It's like, it's like this uniting thing across the board. We start talking about food. We start talking about meals. People got opinions. They got something to say. They got a story to tell. They got why? Because there is a level of supernatural power that's attached to the super normal practice of engaging in a meal with other people. There's something about it in our lives, but there's also something about it in the scriptures. And the simple sermon I want to bring to you today is the invitation we all have to experience Jesus at our table. When you read the scriptures, it'll throw you off how often meals are the center focus of the Bible. In fact, I heard a theologian say, if you deleted mountains and meals from the Bible, you would have very little left. Almost everything that happens in the Bible is on top of a mountain or at a meal. It's the whole story. And what we're going to read today is something so much deeper than taking communion at the end of a sermon, which we are going to do today. And I did an entire sermon on communion called The Body and the Blood on Palm Sunday this year that just talked about the significance and symbolism of the body and blood and what we're doing when we take communion together. But I want to take that thought a step further and talk about how much more you can experience the power and presence of God if you are intentional with your meals. If you have your Bible, hold it up at all of our locations. Hold it up, hold it up high, hold it up high. Okay, keep it up if you are one of those, they're becoming fewer, one of those people who's like no Christmas stuff until after Thanksgiving. Keep it up, keep it up. We just want to see who all is a Grinch at Auburn Community (laughs) Church. I used to be like you. I have changed. I had children. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in verse 36. So this is kind of bizarre when you read it. Those disciples who had the meal with Jesus, they went on the walk with Jesus. Then it was like, whoa, he started eating. And then it says Jesus disappeared from their sight. So then they walk seven miles from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. They start telling the other disciples, hey, y'all were right. He actually is risen and he came and walked with us and showed us the scriptures. But in the moment, while they're telling their friends that they were actually right, Jesus appears. Watch this. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. If you're there, say, I'm there. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. I love when Jesus comes to bring peace, he brings fear. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I love how real the Bible is. Jesus in resurrected form, physically presenting himself to the disciples. They don't believe it. And what is his argument? Some kind of crazy theological thought from out in left field, some kind of explanation of the book of Leviticus. No, Jesus is like, guys, seriously, seriously, it's me. Like, does a ghost have flesh and blood? This is one of those moments in the Bible where you're like, this is exactly what would unfold in a conversation between a resurrected man who the people can't even believe it. He's physically there and he's like, guys, seriously, I'm talking to you right now. Touch me and see, but they still can't believe it. Watch this verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? This is an interesting note from the Gospel of Luke's entirety. Luke, throughout, 
all of his stories, particularly of miracles, is very suspicious of the term amazement or marveling. So Jesus is presenting himself to the disciples and it says they still couldn't see it because of joy and amazement. You hear that and you're like, well, why would that be a bad thing to be joyful or to be amazed by the presence of God? But all through the gospel of Luke, when Luke talks about Jesus did this miracle and they were amazed and they marveled and they were blown away. It's actually not a good thing. It's actually a surface level way of responding to your senses instead of a deep spiritual level taking and treasuring and understanding who God is. Now, who models that? Mary. And that's what we're going to get when we go backwards in Luke to the Christmas narrative over this next season of Advent that I'm so excited about. But when you read about Mary and the birth of Jesus, what does it say? It says Mary pondered these things and treasured them in her heart. Luke is providing a dichotomy, a difference. He's going, there's a difference between being amazed by the power of God and it feeling like something and deeply treasuring and pondering what God is doing and let it becoming a part of you. May we not be a people who are just amazed at the power and presence of God when we're in a moment. May it go deeper at the level of treasuring and pondering. I know there's so much more I need to say about that, and I have an entire sermon coming in the next month, but I just could not read that without telling you that. Amazement is not necessarily a good thing in Luke and Acts. There's a deeper level than just being amazed by God's power, and it's letting it go to a heart level. How does it get to that deep heart level? Jesus is like, okay, even you being amazed is not enough. I got I to gotta make this make sense do you have any food? You guys, this is the Bible. Like you're actually reading the inspired word of God. Jesus can't prove physically that he rose from the dead, even though he's physically there presenting himself. And he's like, I know what'll do it. Food. Do you guys have any food? Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. My number one meal that I did not mention before, by the way, is a restaurant in Manhattan Beach in California, which I heard, we have some people here from Manhattan Beach. Are y'all at this service? Y'all are all over there? That restaurant, I think it was called The Strand. It's like right um, on the beach. I have, Courtney and I were about to cry. It was so awesome. Best seafood I've ever had in my life. It was absolutely phenomenal. And best service. Where, you know, service is something that since 2020, we've had kind of a downfall. And so to be out there and experience it, such, it was phenomenal. Anyway, welcome, California. We're glad you guys are here. Um, that was mine. And, and so Jesus has fish and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he, watch this, opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high which is exactly where the book of Acts is going to pick up. Remember, Luke and Acts are kind of one story. So we're doing Luke this semester. Acts will start in mid-February when we move into Hamilton Road. It's going to be amazing. But what does Jesus explain here? He goes, hold on, I got I to gotta eat something. He eats it, and then all of a sudden, it's like their minds are there. They're ready to see in the scriptures. See what? That the message of the kingdom of God was not something that began when Jesus was crucified. This was the story God's been writing from the beginning. And Jesus reaches back to the law. That's the Torah, the prophets. That's like prophets of old back in like days of Samuel, but all the way up to like Jonah and Daniel's day. 
and the Psalms, which that's not just the Psalms, that it literally means the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, all of it, Jesus is going, it's all been leading up to this moment where the Messiah will die and rise on the third day. And now he's bringing the disciples into the living out of that moment in real time, but how does he do it? He does it through a meal. And Jesus illuminates the scriptures in the context of a meal because that's the way it works. All through the Gospel of Luke, if you pay attention to the narrative, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, leaving a meal, or at a meal. At almost all of it. If you just follow it, and it's the longest gospel in total words, locked and loaded with meals. And if you watch what teaching gets him in the most trouble, it's not even necessarily anything he says. It's what he does at his meals that gets criticized the most. So more than Jesus gets criticized by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for a theological point here or there, something he said that really bothered him, it's really who he eats with. This guy eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. We got a problem with what Jesus is doing at his table. And then when he rises from the dead, all of his resurrection announcements coexist with a meal. He tells the people on the walk to Emmaus, hey, this is what the scriptures say. They don't recognize him. Then he breaks the bread and boom, they know it's him. He's with his disciples, physically presenting himself. Then he sits down, has a bite of fish and boom, they get it. What does he do when he reinstates Peter? He's cooking Breakfast on the beach over a charcoal fire, recreating the scene that Peter was at when he denied Jesus the night before. Jesus is so intentional with meals. And I want to argue today that the meal is not just an interesting method that Jesus uses in his ministry. It's actually the method he invites us into living out the kingdom of God spreading on the earth. Go back to that verse you read, I think it's verse 46, where it says, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's the book of Acts, where it all begins, and that's the one we're living in now, y'all. So of all those things that Jesus talked about, the scriptures of old, the Messiah dead, rising, And then you will be clothed with power from on high. That happens in Acts chapter two. And then all nations, that doesn't mean all countries. It means all people groups. Every tribe and tongue will be represented in heaven because the message of the gospel of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins and repentance from people will be preached throughout the whole world. Here's a question I have for you. Everybody look up here. Don't miss this. When you read that, what context are you thinking about? The the preaching of the message of Jesus. Are you thinking about this? Because I, I think there's a temptation and a tendency when we read about the gospel going out to think about getting people to sit down and listen to a speaker articulate the message of Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. Powerful things happen when people gather and listen to the word of God spoken out loud by a preacher. It happens in the book of Acts many times, particularly when Peter leads 3,000 people to dedicate their lives to Jesus and get baptized on day one of the church. It's an amazing tool that God uses. However, if you read church history, the living out of preaching the gospel to all nations and the early church spreading was less about a speaker in front of a massive crowd 
and more about the personal dedication of the people of God being willing to even give their lives in martyrdom that modeled an honorable death to an empire that did not understand why they would all be willing to die that way. That was the number one thing. But the second thing, the way the gospel went out was through the dinner table. Read church history, house to house, home to home. People who are willing to take in anybody and everybody. A level of hospitality that looked like if I see a baby discarded, I will take them in and raise them as my own. You know, back in the day, people accused Christians of being cannibals because they would take all the discarded babies and they heard their teaching, like eat his body and drink his blood. What? And then now they're taking babies. What are they doing? And they were literally, some of them tortured and killed for that. Christians were marked for the first few centuries more than anything by their hospitality and their practice of being intentional with their meals, so much so that it literally toppled the most powerful empire in the world. Person to person, home to home, my table is open, conversations happen, kingdom of God is spreading. If you look back, it wasn't the massive revival moments where the right speaker was speaking at the right time. It was the people of God empowered to model the ministry of Jesus that he lived out as their own at their own table. And that's the message I want to bring before you today. I want to tell you that our plan at Auburn Community Church for reaching people is not to get as many of them here or at Hamilton Road or at any other location or following along on the podcast. What a terrible plan for evangelism, by the way. And I'm sorry, I know that that has been the plan for the mega church for many decades of like, hey, if you can like get your friend to come on Easter or Christmas and have the speaker do this like really seeker sensitive kind of funny talk that makes him go, oh, this is not that weird. And then at the end, he throws out the forgiveness of sins. If you repeat a prayer, maybe they might say the words after and get saved. Y'all, do you realize this has been our primary model for decades? Do you realize how much that diminishes the responsibility of discipleship that we've been talking about? So all you got to do is get to a service and hear the right guy say it the right way and maybe mumble a prayer under your breath, then you're going to heaven one day. Absolutely not. Discipleship happens at a relational level, and it doesn't always happen in a moment at a service. Sometimes it happens over the course of seasons. There are people who are way more likely to come to your dinner table than they are to sit on that row right there way more likely. It's about whether or not you see the making of disciples as your responsibility or ours from the stage. And I want to argue that we all have a table. We all have meals that we can learn to be intentional with. And I want to also argue this was Jesus's method for his ministry spreading. If you look at what Jesus said about himself, he said, the son of man came three different times. He calls himself the son of man because that was the phrase used in Daniel, which was actually the most popular book of the Old Testament being read at the time of Jesus. You can tell I've been geeking out on church history lately. But everybody's reading Daniel, so Jesus is like, son of man. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. And the son of man came eating and drinking. Tim Chester makes the point in the book, A Meal with Jesus, that maybe the reason why he said the son of man came eating and drinking is because he's showing us how he plans on accomplishing the first two things. How do you plan on seeking and saving the lost? By sitting down across a table from them and letting them know they're not disqualified. By not needing them. And and I don't mean that just for like super dirty, sinful people. Ooh, the prostitutes, tax collectors. You know, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house too. 
He's just as interested in the self-righteous as he is the self-deprecated. He's just as interested in the person who looks religious but is really broken and lost and the person who's heartbroken and the person who looks like they got it all together. Jesus is going, anyone and everyone, welcome at my table. This is the plan for our church. It is not to get more of them addicted to my sermons. It is to get more of you owning what is natural to you and taking on hospitality as a call, not just a spiritual gift. There are some people who are more hospitable than others, no doubt. That is not a word that I would use to describe my spiritual gifting if I took an assessment, okay? There are, there are many families and many women throughout this church who model that so much better than others. But hospitality, the table, is something that I believe God wants to use to reach the lost through your life. And I also believe it's the best context for disciple making. We just dedicated all those babies up here. You know we have just as many families dedicating babies at the next gathering. Crazy. I want to warn some of the parents and maybe some of the others with older kids, like what you do with your table will be the number one deciding factor of whether or not your kid gets discipled. And we got a generation of parents, somewhat rightfully so, freaking out about all these other things. We're freaking out about when our kids get exposed to this or that, or when when should get them a cell phone, or oh my goodness, Disney, have you lost your minds, and why are you trying to indoctrinate our children with the brokenness? I'm, I'm so disappointed because I'm such a Disney person. I love Disney, but they gotta stop. Like, like it's, it's getting bad. And you, and you talk to parents, particularly in our church, me as well, and you go, what is happening in our world? What, what is happening when our school system seems to be indoctrinating our kids with things that are totally against what's taught in the scripture? Like, what are we going to do about this? And believe me, I'm, I'm nervous about stuff like that. I am. I'm, I'm a little fired up about Disney and all that. But let, let me tell you this, way bigger threat. And it's not just me telling you this. Psychologists have found this to be true. Way bigger threat to your child's development than when they get exposed to pornography, than how addicted they are to gaming, than what happens with them in their phone, than what happens with whatever they run into on whatever streaming service. The most detrimental thing that could happen to your child is for you to neglect the table with them. That is the most formative place in their life. Even non-Christian psychologists are finding that that is the number one factor leading to overall life wellness. Do they have a table to belong? And I meet so many parents that are adamant about, I'm not going to let my kid whatever. But are we adamant about being intentional with discipling our kids at a table? I'm saying maybe a greater enemy than all those threats out there is how over busy you allow your family to be and neglect the table and neglect the fact that that is where they'll get to process emotion. And I'm not talking about just having a meal and eating food and passing the time. I'm talking about a spirit of intentionality around a table. This is the way I want our community groups going deeper. I'm all for community groups having Bible studies and reading books and, and all that's great. But I can tell you just from my life personally, the most powerful times our community group has, and we have a Wednesday morning Bible study and it's great. It's at 6 a.m. I'm not sure God can move in that hour, but sometimes he does. It's awesome. But one Friday night a month, we try to put it on the calendar for a long intentional meal and the conversations about, hey, what's going on in your marriage? What's going on with your kids? What's going on with you and God? And I'm telling you, through the practice of going more intentional with your meals, you will actually experience more of God. If you can't tell, the whole sermon is super simple. Are you using the over 1,000 meals you will have in a given year as an opportunity to experience more of God and spread the kingdom of God? Or are they just happening to fuel you enough to get you to the next thing? 
I believe this is your most consistent opportunity you will be given to see the gospel spread through your life and see yourself go deeper in discipleship. And if we are going to reach more people and if we're going to go deeper in discipleship, maybe it's not when we're going to get all of our discipleship tracks and courses right and verses memorized. Maybe it's when we're going to get serious about doing life together, church at a table, and learn how to fight through awkwardness and learn how to ask questions that are deeper than just the weather or sports or whatever's going on with our kids or whatever's going on in school. I am so guilty. Like I could sit with you in this sermon and just take the beating that some of you are taking right now and go, ow, this one, I'm not, I know I'm not being that intentional. But the one thing I think God has done consistently in my life is provide a voice of intentionality. I do not like wasting a meal. I don't like having dinner with friends and not having any moment to go, okay, stop. How are you guys really doing? Like what's going on? And, and not to go, ooh, tell me the worst thing going on right now, but just to go, y'all, we, we have this life to either spread the kingdom of God to someone who doesn't know Jesus or go deeper with people who do. Can we use the 21 times a week we've been given an opportunity to do the same thing and share in what Jesus had modeled for us through his ministry in life 2,000 years ago? It's so much deeper than a cracker and a shot of juice at the end of a sermon. It is the invitation to go deeper with God. Are y'all with me on this? I got three quick things and then we're done. The meal, the meal. Three things a meal could bring to your life if you added a little more intentionality. Number one is this. The meal is our most consistent opportunity for gratitude. Our most consistent opportunity for gratitude. Why is life around the table the ultimate opportunity to go deeper with God? Because you have a built-in reminder to grab your most powerful spiritual weapon in the word of God a grateful spirit. First Thessalonians 5, Ephesians 5, talk about giving thanks as a means of stirring up gratitude in your heart so that you're on guard against the attacks of the devil. The scriptures see gratitude as one of your greatest weapons. And I know in my life, Oftentimes, the reason I get so tempted in certain areas and so entitled in others is because I haven't pulled out the cobwebs of just thinking that everybody owes me something and everything that's undone in my life needs to get done. And I haven't taken a moment to actually say out loud to God, God, oh my goodness, I am so thankful for the life that you've given me. And not just for the life you give me, for what Jesus has done for me, for the fact that this food is even on our table. See, you and I will spend all of our time counting up what's happening in everybody else's house and what's on their table and what's at their lake house or beach house and or beach house and everything that you want that they have instead of like looking at your own table and going, oh my goodness, God, I could talk for hours about how thankful I am to you. But here's the thing. We're not gonna talk for hours about how thankful we are because we got stuff to do. But you can bow your head in gratitude when you're about to take a bite and go, oh, I've been really entitled and ungrateful lately. I have a friend, it, it drives me crazy when he prays before meals. It, like, it's so convicting to me. Because when I pray before a meal, I'm like, God, thank you for these friends. Thank you for this time. Bless the food to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat. But this guy, this guy, his name's Jason. He led worship here like a month ago, okay? When we, when we hang out with Jason and his wife, Rachel, and he prays before a meal, he like stops, breathes. Doesn't take long, but he's like, God, there are millions of people who would do anything to be at the table we're at right now. Thank you, Lord. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're such a better husband and pastor than I am. It's so awesome. But I'm like, man, what a, it doesn't have to take long. What a built-in opportunity 
to grab one of your weapons. You know, I, I read an article on Desiring God a long time ago, and I did a whole sermon about it in 2019 about how gratitude is the ultimate weapon against sexual sin. And it was the weirdest like, concept for me because I was like, being grateful makes me able to fight sexual temptation more? What in the world? And it was like, yeah, the number one reason why you look outside your marriage is because you're not grateful for the one you have been given. And you're not holding on to what's right in front of you and treasuring it. No, what do we do with our stuff? We use and utilize it while our eyes are on other stuff. Meals are our most consistent opportunity to just for five seconds, look around. It doesn't have to just be for the food. It could be for the breath in your lungs, to go, God, thank you again, thank you. And I haven't thanked you in a while. And if a spirit of thanksgiving comes over you, it doesn't have to be a holiday. It can be a weapon. I get it. We do it once a year. Everybody gets together and, and we eat the food and pass the time. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. This is not about you taking time on Thursday and going around the table and naming what you're thankful for. I hope you do that. I think it's great. I think it would be better if in every meal there was a split second to go, oh, I've been so entitled lately. And I need to be grateful for what Jesus has done and grateful for things that I haven't even named. God, thank you in Jesus' name, amen. The meal is our most consistent opportunity for gratitude. Number two, the meal is our most effective opportunity for mission. Our most effective opportunity for mission. I want to encourage those of you who are super intimidated by the idea of sharing your faith to think about what would it look like to aim your conversations at your meals at deeper things. You can go there. I get it. You can't provide a defense for your faith if they have a question about why people like Hitler exist. Like, I get it. There are resources. You can Google them in two seconds. You can actually find them on desiringgod.org. That is your best place to ask questions and go, oh, all you got to do is type it in. There's a resource on it. I promise you it's a better answer than anything I or any of the elders have to offer you. You have it in your pocket. But it's not about being equipped to answer everything. It's about being open enough to pay attention to people. There was a guy who um, God just kept bringing around in my life over and over again for a couple of years. And I would invite him here and he heard about what God was doing here. And he saw, you know, all the cars on Sundays and things like that. And he would ask questions about whatever, but no, no amount of inviting. He almost came on a Christmas one time, but then didn't see him. Or maybe he was here and I, I don't know. But there was something that happened in his eyes when I looked at him and said, hey, man, you live right down the street from me. If one night you just want to hang and come over, I would be so open. Come, let's eat dessert. Let's have a drink. Let's hang out. And his response was so much more personal than every other time I invited him to church. Because now it was like, oh, that's real. That, and not that this isn't real. I do believe in people coming to church and encountering God. But I also believe God moves when our responsibility shifts from, hey, you got your schedule and you're a million things going on right now, but I actually have a schedule and an agenda for what's going on in the world, and it's called making disciples of all nations. And if you're on board with it, open your eyes at your table and cause an invitation to go deeper. The greatest discipleship, one-on-one um, -on -one relationship I've ever had, uh, number two, Gage, you're number one. I'll just be honest. I mean, who makes a disciple like Gage? Um, oh, I love that y'all thought that was sweet because I thought it was really arrogant. Um, <laughs> thank y'all seeing the good in me. Gage is number one. But this other guy, um, he, was, he literally knew nothing about faith, just knew he wanted Jesus. And my way of discipling him was, hey, Wednesday mornings, we're going to meet at Chick-fil-A because God's going to be there. 
and we're going we're gonna to eat chicken biscuits. We're going to walk verse by verse through Romans, like one at a time. I'm just going to read the verse and ask you if you know what it means. By the end of Romans, he had it. Like he was able to take chapters at a time from knowing nothing. So I know we think like, oh, to make another disciple, that would be so hard for me. It, you know, you want to know what discipleship is? It's rigged so that you have to go deeper in order to replicate. My job is rigged for me to have to go deep into God in order to have anything to say. And you go, oh man, I'm glad I'm not a preacher. But you are. You are ministers of the new covenant of God. So if I'm meeting with someone and I'm walking through Romans, I'm probably gonna have to read Romans. And no, yes, that's the plan. But instead of thinking of it as this awkward conversation in your hallway with you two with your Bible, walking verse by verse, what if it's just over a meal, something so normal that you know you're gonna do, they're gonna do, and you create the time and you create the space for God to move. I believe in evangelism through stages. Do not hear me say that I don't. I believe that God can move through a podcast. I believe God could move so much more if we would take ownership over the meal, the table. And it's our most effective opportunity for mission. Number three. Oh, this one's beautiful. Our most inclusive opportunity for communion. Our most inclusive opportunity for communion. The definition of communion is the sharing of intimate thoughts or feelings. I think reframing the way you see your time with God as a meal could reshape the way you spend one-on-one time with God. Not that there needs to be physical food, but I truly believe you and I, as New Testament believers, we can have as much of God as we are willing to make room for. If you and I learn that the invitation of Jesus is actually, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you let me in, I will come in and dine with you. Jesus is inviting anyone and everyone, no matter how far from him, to come and sit at his table and be reminded of the fact that they belong there because of him and him alone. So every week when we take communion, which we're about to do, in fact, you can go ahead and get your uh, elements out that you got on the way in. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. I want our team to go ahead and take care of that moment because I want to set up a moment for you to be able to take communion today. We got some right here in the middle if y'all don't see them. Raise your hand high. They'll get to you. All of our other locations do the same thing. I want us to take communion today in light of how good the grace of God is. And I'm going to read something from Isaiah 55 to you. It's called The Invitation to the Thirsty. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament about the people of God who have been separated because of exile and now God's calling them to know the good that is in him. And I think we can read it together as New Testament believers and experience something new from this. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand that the communion you're able to have with God is not limited to the shot of juice and the piece of bread you're about to take. This is the ultimate reminder every time you think about a meal of the mercy of God on your life. Here's Isaiah 55, and then, and then I, I think this is gonna hit home. Hear this from God, y'all. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Look up here and do not miss this. Those verses have been quoted out of context so many times, it's hard for me to read them without stopping like I am right now. When God says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, we always quote that and we go, yeah, well, we don't understand God, you know, stuff happens, his ways are not our ways, you know, he'll work it out. The context of Isaiah 55 is God inviting wicked, guilty, unrighteous sinners to his table to eat for free. And he feels the need in the middle of that invitation. Come to the water if you're thirsty. Come, buy, let's eat. Come to my table. Let the wicked forsake their way. Seek God while he may be found for he will freely pardon. And then he stops and he goes, hold on, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. In other words, he goes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there's no way God could be saying that. There's no way God could be inviting someone like me with my mess and my past to his table. And God is stopping to go, I don't think the way you think. And I don't see things the way you see them. As much as you think you are disqualified and do not belong in the family of God, to that degree, that is how much you belong because of the grace that has surpassed sin. Jesus has made a way for you at the table and Jesus is inviting you right now. So don't sit there and take your little communion elements and bow your head in shame and sing the last song and leave and have a happy Thanksgiving. Lift your eyes and see that God himself has said, you, my table. But I'm a tax collector. Yeah, Zacchaeus, you. I'm coming to your table and I'm gonna make it my own. Can we be a people who says, yes, oh, wow, God, you've invited us to the table and because, because I got into the table, anybody can. And I'm going to do everything I can in my life to make sure they have received the same invitation that I have received. As you take communion today, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time, that is the best decision you will ever make. You are absolutely invited to do that. Let's have a moment of prayer and repentance. Husbands, pray over your wives. Maybe pray about how y'all use meals together. If you're not married, pray over your own story and the relationships that you need to invest in deeper. But take this time, use this time to focus on what you have heard, and then we'll sing together. Let's take communion, the body and the blood of Jesus.